in between episode 20. Can pharma and IDNs collaborate? Today, I talk strategy and key account management with Dave Dirk, my co-president at Aventria Health Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, Dave Dirk, my co-president from Aventria Health Group, and I talk about the pharmaceutical industry and its ability to collaborate with so-called large organized customer groups. Large organized customers, by the way, is pharmaceutical code for IDNs or pretty much any large healthcare stakeholder. Also in this conversation, our clients refers to Aventria's pharmaceutical clients. Just one other term for your lexicon. When we talk about unbranded programs or value above the brand, this means things that don't directly talk about the pharmaceutical product. So these are disease management type things, patient education, maybe population health management initiatives, for example, that pharma might sponsor, which help drive outcomes, but don't directly deal with their products per se. My name is Stacey Richter, and as always, this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Dave. Thanks, Stacey. I'm happy to be here. So let's talk about pharmaceutical companies working with IDNs, integrated delivery networks, or other health systems. So we're not talking about individual physicians here, and definitely not patients, but a pharmaceutical company working with the decision suite at a larger healthcare provider organization. So Dave, I know you've got that anecdote about the telephone call. I was speaking with a client of ours. One of his account managers went to see a large academic medical center. And this is one that's a top 50 in the country. After that face-to-face meeting, the customer called and said, don't send him to us any longer. And he said, why not? What happened? And he said, well, he never asked us about us. He only talked about product utilization and there was no interest and no sensitivity to what we're trying to accomplish here. So we don't have an interest in having any future dialogue or time with him. It was a very powerful story that is representative of the challenges our clients face as they're trying to work more effectively with these very large, organized, sophisticated customer groups. You just said, you know, this is representative. Is it representative or is that large, you know, academic medical center an outlier? And in, let's just say most cases today, it's perfectly okay for a pharmaceutical account manager to go into a large organized customer, as we affectionately call IDNs, and start talking about the brand before and after they talk about the brand. Well, as I said, the customer is a forward-thinking, forward-acting organization. So are they representative of all the rest? Maybe not. But is that where the market is going? Absolutely. The trend is absolutely moving that way. It's not a brand new trend. It might be out there for the last, I don't know, 10 years, maybe more, but it's increasingly important. It's increasingly accepted. And I also want to say, you didn't ask me this, that it wasn't unique to that one client organization that they are not great at their key account management delivery. I would argue strongly and confidently that that's the norm. That's not part of the historical pharma model. So 
It's evolving. It's complex. It's challenging. The customers are evolving. It's a real opportunity. Very few are content where they are in how well they do it. So it's a great area of focus and need and opportunity. It's easy to see how we got to this place. There's obviously great pressure on pharmaceutical account managers and the brand teams and, and you know others involved at a pharma company to drive brand sales and to meet quarterly goals. It's kind of a sophisticated way of thinking. Let's just put it this way. It's easy to connect the dots between talk about the brand and sell the brand. It might not be quite as intuitive to infer how meeting a customer's need is actually going to be what they say. Sometimes the shortest way home is the long way around relative to (laughs) a lot of things, but brand sales as well. It's funny you say that because it's one of the points I wanted to make during this discussion. Historically, pharma trained first their representatives on the brand. Secondly, they then trained them on selling skills. And they're very effective at doing that. And they, and they select people where they can enable gains in learning and applications there in those spaces. But what they don't do well, pharma, and what's newer is training them on understanding customer objectives and needs. That's an area that needs to be buttressed. And it also might necessitate a person that has a different skill set. Some field-based reps can make that transition well. Others might not because it's a different skill set and it's a different approach. So they have to not only unlearn what they have been successful at previously, but also apply a new set of skills, which may or may not come naturally to them. What's really important, and this isn't certainly limited to a pharmaceutical sale. This is just kind of like sales in general. What a customer wants to buy is impact. What is being sold certainly matters, but what's far more important is how the brand or the product solves somebody else's issue. The pharmaceutical industry, of course, at this juncture, and Dr. Jennifer Miller was on the podcast last year talking about the relative lack of trust that the pharmaceutical industry enjoys at this moment in time. And one of the reasons and one of the ways that happened was if you don't really care about what a customer's needs are, you just push a product, that doesn't lead to a trusting relationship. It doesn't lead to someone thinking that you've got their best interests at heart, which is what breeds trust. I don't think they don't care. I think it is that they haven't stopped to think about it and they haven't stopped to contextualize the identification of those needs and then put their offering in that context, because that's not how it had been done previously. Previously, it was all about efficacy and safety, and it wasn't the identification of customer priorities first, and then delivering messages in the context of what the customer is trying to achieve. It was presumptuous that efficacy and safety were the only two issues, and obviously then rolled up to your brand. We're in this transitional phase right now. So I think there's a lot of historical vested kinds of thinking, which have brought us to the point that we are. You know, for example, we are post-patent cliff, (laughs) for one, relative to the pharmaceutical industry. Number two, and I know you have some things to say about this, Dave, but there's been consolidation largely driven by reimbursement changes. The more consolidation there is, the more power there is 
out in the marketplace. So it's not, you know, pharma, this monolithic entity negotiating with these small players. It's, it's basically pharma meeting on a level playing field with peers at this point. And furthermore, these large customers have risk on the table in a value-based healthcare environment. They are working to manage the cost of care and to manage the outcomes. And increasingly, they have more and more skin in the game. And the outcomes there can make or break the performance of an organization. They're worth of thin margins and positive rates of reimbursement predicated on quality scores, for example, can be a real bonus to boost the performance of the organization. And conversely, without those, so lower reimbursement rates can be very costly to them. I think this is also where it gets really interesting. As you said, the more that stakeholders within the healthcare industry begin to assume risk based on, let's just say, outcomes or become responsible for outcomes, the more that they're going to turn around and say to pharma, show us the outcomes. And pharma can't show outcomes in a silo. So this is where collaboration and the idea of working together with these large organized customers becomes really an imperative. Pharma can't achieve its goals or at least prove its value in the absence of having collaborative relationships with some of these customers who would be able to facilitate the real world evidence or real world data that is necessary to prove those points. I think that's a great point. And I said it on a previous podcast with you that one of the most important roles that pharma can play as they collaborate with their customers is the fact that they are experts in the diseases that they focus on. And so they invest a lot of time and money and and personnel to deeply understand these conditions and their ability to deliver those insights and support to these customers. They're dealing with hundreds or thousands of conditions in patient care, but pharma might be dealing with, you know, dozens or fewer. When you talk about collaboration, it's a remarkable opportunity to come in and share these disease insights and maybe support to these customers who can appreciate it because it can be translated into better patient care and better outcomes. And that can be population health, that can be patient health and wellness, it can be patient satisfaction. All of these things are meaningful. And then today, many of our clients are focusing on rare diseases. And that argument then becomes all the more meaningful because it's harder for customers to be specialists in every area. Which brings up a barrier. And this is something that I'd like to get your take on, Dave, because it's something that I'm not going to say we hear quite frequently amongst our clients, but I read articles and, and this is kind of the elephant in the room. If a pharmaceutical entity is being held to achieve quarterly goals and those quarterly goals include market share, it becomes a zero-sum game at some level. I mean, it should be a positive-sum game that if you diagnose more patients, then, you know, you have more patients in the pool and therefore market share should increase. Except that if the brand is not the largest brand, then the conversation always comes up if you talk about doing collaborative programs or you you talk about doing, you know, the jargon, the cliche these days is value above the brand. The instant rebuttal is, why would we do that program? We're just driving more patients to our competitors' products because they have higher market share. Yeah, I think that I would challenge that perspective by asking if there are ways to differentiate your brand 
from the competition. And if, in fact, there are ways for differentiation, then the opportunity exists to support customers for better patient care while ensuring that these important differentiators are considered in the patient journey, including treatment decisions and so forth. So it doesn't need to be a branded message. It can be unbranded, but what you want to do is ensure that the key points are understood for patient care, including your brand's differentiators. Yeah, and this is this is becoming increasingly important as ICER, f- for just one, begins to really tabulate how the brands, you know, what the value is of a brand and its differentiation. You know, the, the days could be numbered for brands that come out of the shoot with no advantage over a much cheaper standard of care. Yeah, absolutely. I would argue that if there are much cheaper alternatives or standards of care, then it's going to be a very challenging uphill battle, which I think is going to be increasingly challenging as we go forward. Maybe what we can do now, Dave, is consider, uh, I'm trying to think about the best order to put things in. And I think maybe we give some kind of overarching suggestions about top line. How do we achieve an account team organization or a mindset maybe that would enable a brand to be successful in the current environment which we find ourselves in. And then we can kind of talk through some barriers, you know, like what are the hard parts about achieving these things and maybe offer some suggestions. Does that sound like a good plan? Okay. So let's talk about you got to solve the customer's problems first. And it's hard to solve a customer's problems without a strategy and a comprehensive plan. If we were to start with planning, if we were to give advice, I think the advice would be to think about creating a near-term and a long-term strategy, that there might be business demands that necessitate early wins and progress, but greater value can be realized perhaps with a long-term plan that takes building and investing and growing to actualize optimal opportunity in the market. One of the things that we heard, I recently had a conversation with one of my colleagues who was an executive for key account management team. And the advice he gives today, these field account managers are not often involved in the planning process. So their input is inadequately solicited by the framers of the planning I think that that's a huge starting point. When we build programs, the first thing we ask is, let us speak to your field people, because we're going to learn things about their customers, about their approaches, about their knowledge base that are critical to developing an impactful solution. That mindset can be rolled out to all the other things that are done that are integrated with the field and the success of the strategy or the plan. And that includes things like uh, how long will it take? How well are we training to that? Do we have the incentive comp plans aligned? And do we have the systems, the infrastructure to support this evolving model that's designed to be a better collaborator with these large customers? 
the way that Roger Martin puts it, you know, he says that strategy is a coordinated and integrated set of five choices. What's the winning aspiration? Where do you play? How do you win? What are the core capabilities that are necessary? And as well as the management systems that you have to have in place in order to pull off the opportunity. And I, and I would just kind of nail the opportunity to how pharma can be a collaborative partner throughout the whole patient journey. What happens before and after the patient gets to the point of care? That matters more than ever at this juncture if you're concerned about outcomes. The points of care may or may not happen or the points of prescribing may or may not happen if a patient isn't identified, for example. And if there is a, a guideline which has been operationalized that doesn't include the decision set to diagnose for the particular biomarker or the particular criteria which is necessary or that your brand diagnosis depends on, then the point of prescribing is never going to happen. And therefore, your drug will never get prescribed to the patient's detriment. You know, so this is all about a win-win. A couple of points here. One of the barriers I think pharma has to doing stuff like this is really understanding what the win-win actually is or not striving for the ideal. Because what is possible might be half of the ideal, but half is better than nothing. And if it doesn't ultimately benefit the, the patient or the organization, then it's just simply not going to happen. So going in with a program where pharma wins and everybody else loses, I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting that that would be the intent. But if that is ultimately what is going to happen, it's not even going to be looked at. That's why I think we are in a period of cultural shift and change relative to how our pharma clients work with these IDNs, these large customers. And you know, the, the exciting part here is that once our clients effectively make this shift, they might start in one brand area, but it then will cascade to other therapeutic areas as they reorient the mindset, the tools, the systems, and the approaches to more effectively partner with these customers so that they can impact larger populations of patients. They can have a more durable position with these customers as they're seen as a partner with a seat at the table helping to get better outcomes, whether that is realizing cost efficiencies through fewer adverse events, or whether it is earlier diagnosis, or whether it is reduced rehospitalizations. All of these advantages are terribly important to customers, and they're seeking solutions to move the needle and sustain or improve their competitiveness in the marketplace. I think if I were to try to summarize all of it today, as these customers are growing, you know, through the consolidation that you mentioned, these account managers are being asked to take on more responsibility. And so the role is increasingly important, but the systems that support these account managers haven't caught up. The responsibility has grown, but the training, the infrastructure, the planning, and the strategies, as, as you talk so well about, aren't at the same level that the responsibility is. And that's really the next step 
is to ensure that the infrastructure is there to affect the cultural shift and ensure the competency of these teams with these large customers. I think all of that needs to be part of that larger comprehensive plan that we were talking about. I mean, it's definitely uh, certainly a, a bucket of activity that absolutely needs to happen as part of that comprehensive plan, because if you can't implement it, it, what's the point of having a plan? I do think, though, that just taking a couple of steps back and just talking about this whole word strategy, which these days is bandied about and has almost become a synonym for tactics. And that's an issue. If you don't have a strategy that sits behind the tactics, then you wind up with a whole lot of tactics that may or may not work. And as a result, spend a whole lot of money. And maybe if the tactic were just retooled a little bit or the messaging were slightly different, like it would have gone great. But if we are trying to expedite things and just immediately hop right over the planning part in order to get to the sexy end game, then you certainly are not going to affect the kind of change that perhaps you are looking for. Absolutely. And so the onus is on the management and even sometimes executive management, right? I think for our clients who are doing it the best and enjoying the rewards of that, it's because it has been either approved or initiated at the executive level to say, we want to be developing these strategies and plans enable our capabilities to work effectively, if not successfully, with these large IDNs. Whether it is executive management, whether it is middle management, and I want to reiterate the inclusion of the field people early in the stages to get their input, ultimately that'll result in their buy-in as well. Those are the not necessary but helpful requirements to ensure the success here. A brand manager could say, let me start this on my own or a brand director, or a vice president, any of these people could improve the current process to ensure that the collaborative population health partnership approach is best deployed in the field on behalf of patient care with their brand. But if it's organizationally deployed, that is by far the best, and and it leverages all of the in-house capabilities to ensure that they're aligned on the same objectives on how to work with these customers effectively. Yeah, they say that, you know, tactics are doing things right and strategy is doing the right things. If you don't have the comprehensive process with which to figure out what the right things are, then you wind up doing things which might be, let's just say, not optimized. And it kind of doesn't matter if you do them well. Your your potential diminishes. We were just talking about barriers and we had mentioned a few. One of the big ones is making sure that the account team is both part of the process and, and adequately trained and equipped to and motivated to work with the IDNs at the level that the IDNs are expecting. The game has leveled up at this juncture, and I hesitate to call it a game because people's health is at stake, but it is a much more sophisticated, much more complex and complicated marketplace at this juncture, and the expectations of these large, sophisticated, very smart customers has certainly risen. Another one is just what we were talking about, people confusing tactics with strategy. Kind of the opposite, though, is analysis paralysis, and the idea that we have to... think about things and get data to substantiate it 
And it kind of turns into this hydraulic where the marketplace is changing faster than an internal process. So nothing ever kind of gets done because by the time the whatever it is gets validated, the circumstances have changed or there's been turnover in the organization. And that's just as bad, honestly. Like there's there's certainly a sweet spot of how much time you spend thinking about something before you roll it out. I think that that is a terribly important point. There's a couple of problems that might have a similar solution. And one is that the marketplace is changing quickly. Another could be that management changes. So I'll put that in there as well. But also that sometimes these plans are built as an initiative, and then they're not adequately referred to or updated as time rolls on. So I think an important consideration is to consider these plans a living document so that you can ebb and flow with market changes or management or field changes, but also that you're referring to it and driving towards it as opposed to being reactionary to things that might not be on strategy. It's a commitment to invest the time, invest the energy, and then work hard to reap the rewards that can be bountiful. Again, these IDNs are looking for this support. And it's, to your point, sustained support. It can't be, let's get in, then let's get out because there were budget cuts or strategy changes and so forth. There has to be a commitment to this, both for the benefit of the brand and the team, but also for the benefit of the customers in that relationship. Yeah, for sure. If you talk about collaboration, and it's easy to bandy that word around, but if you start thinking about what are the prerequisites for collaboration, it's basically two parties that have a relationship. And if one party is acting very transactionally or kind of dipping in and dipping out, then you don't have the prerequisites to actually collaborate. And that's going to take, you know, another thing that it definitely bears mentioning, which is the understanding, enablement and championship from executive leadership at a pharma organization. And that can take the form of incentive compensation or MBOs, management by objectives. And it also could take the form of an understanding that the plan is incremental to a longer term payoff, that there needs to be kind of a ramp up. And there certainly can be incremental returns or incremental impact that occurs during that journey. But this is a journey that this is not something where we, we do one thing and then, you know, next year's brand plan isn't necessarily a follow on and an incremental build to this year's. So, the pharma teams that have a strategic backbone in their brand plans regard each year's brand plan as a build on the prior years so that there is an incremental ramp up toward a large solution. And it's important that senior leadership understands that that's what's going on, because if each year is a brand new conversation then you don't have the time frame in which to build the infrastructure and the training and whatnot, which is really necessary in order to roll things out or affect the grand scale change that you might be looking for. Because that's not something you can just kind of flip a switch and have happen. I think people want to flip a switch and have something happen. I think that needs to be challenged because just as much as that switch can be turned on, that switch can also perhaps be turned off. 
the much more valuable brands are those that build upon their successes. And it absolutely is a journey. There absolutely is value in the incremental momentum so that brand use is accelerated over time as opposed to accelerated in a point in time. That's what everybody's looking for. That's what our IDN customers are looking for. And we have to encourage our clients to think of it that way too, not to be seeking necessarily a shiny new penny, but rather to be building a growth plan and making investments in that so that you can reap the rewards over time. The one that we certainly need to mention is, of course, the legal and compliance aspect of everything that we're talking about, that as pharma starts investigating these new collaborative relationships, they might be breaking new ground. And as we all know, lawyers are frequently sets them on the edge. You know, the idea of setting precedents, it's certainly much safer to do something that has been done an adequate number of times before and not received letters from the powers that be. So it's tricky, you know, to ensure that the, the program is compliant based on the best that we know thus far, and that we've got a medical legal regulatory team who's willing to work to ensure that the new parts of the program are compliant to the best of of our abilities and and collaborate together to ensure that that happens, as opposed to saying, no, that's not going to work. See you later. Yeah, I think there's three facets to that. One is you have to build it compliantly. The second is that you have to, or hope to, work with the review committee to help show them, sometimes educate them, on why it is compliant and why it is acceptable, because we're breaking new ground in this regard. And the old criteria might not apply because this is a new approach and it's a new era. And then thirdly is the point that you made. So if, in fact, there isn't broad approval then how can we work together to find a solution that is approvable, that does deliver support to these customers, but is anointed as approvable and compliant by the review committee? I think it's those three. You have to be informed on the build. You have to ensure that the reviewers have the best information and the most current information to make their choices. And then you have to work in a collaborative manner to build something that is going to be approvable and effective too. Is there anything I'm not thinking of here? Dave, do we leave anything off the list? There was one story that I would like to share, you know, that came up yesterday that has relevance here. So it came out of vaccines and they target a handful of large IDNs and they had a couple of losses last year. And when they did a retrospective analysis to see why they had those losses, the breadth and depth of reach within the customer was negligent. Like they only had like one name at this very large customer. And that was very reflective of the fact that they haven't worked in a pop health manner, but rather in a transactional manner, and that they're paying the price because they lost that account. And their belief is, had they had inroads to all these other stakeholders, they would have had more advocates and not have lost the business based on price. So you want to talk a little bit about Aventria, Dave, and how Aventria might be able to help to take advantage of the opportunities and mitigate some of the challenges that we talked about here. Yeah, thank you, Stacey. Our mission is to make a difference in patient care by helping patients, providers, and payers collaborate on shared priorities. And it's fertile ground. 
there is a lot of complexity and inefficiency in our healthcare system. And what we do is help our clients work, either pharma or others, help them work together with these large organized customers to deliver patient care and better patient care. We do it through helping educate the field, by building solutions that are predicated on customer needs, by the inclusion of support within EHR and HIT systems, and by starting with a very insightful, meaningful strategy to meet these aligned objectives that we talk about. We think we're very good at it, and uh, we're happy to be part of the solution. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Dave. Thanks for inviting me, Stacey. I appreciate it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.